I work for Becoming What God Intended Ministries. And what we do is create curriculum and programs and train trainers to use that material all over Asia and in North America. You saw a representation of our program. That program is used extensively in China, and it's in Mandarin, it's in Cantonese. Cantonese means it's used in Hong Kong, it's used in China, and tens of thousands have gone through the material that's represented in that 22-week discipleship process. It's heart changing. The great enemy that we have is our own instincts. Because of the fall, because of the culture, often because of our family background, sometimes because of poor Bible teaching, we have instincts that really are a deep and profound contradiction to the truths of Scripture. They're the fortresses. Those are the things that Paul says we need to tear down. And the process of Head to Heart is designed to do that over a 22-week period. I can tell that this is an emotionally rich church just by listening to the singing. You have a healthy involvement with your emotional life. But oftentimes... The inner life of believers is ignored while the mental life and the activity of believers is emphasized in discipleship. You change a heart, you change a life. That's what this is all about. But let's turn to the Trinity. Imagine three cottages on a lake shore. And in one cottage, God the Father dwells. In another cottage, Jesus dwells. In a third cottage, the Holy Spirit dwells. And waves of Christians are coming in boats across the lake, and they get out. <laughs> they get out. And they begin to line up at various cottages. And in certain circles, usually the Bible-oriented evangelical church, there's this huge line at the cottage that Jesus is at. Then in other circles that emphasize the Holy Spirit, there's this massive line of individuals lined up to go visit with the Holy Spirit. Then, interestingly enough, at the cottage of God the Father, it's not unusual to have five or ten folks. <laughs> in one sense, as in American culture and in Asian culture, where the Father is missing in the life of the family, surprisingly, surprisingly, God the Father seemingly is ignored too in the life of the Trinity and in the life of the church. Three cottages, believers lining up, picking out which one they want to emphasize. Well, I would submit to you that that's a false representation of what we find in Christianity. Instead of three cottages, let's make it a three-story house. And the first story is where Jesus Christ dwells. The second story is where God the Father dwells. The third story is where the Holy Spirit dwells. When we enter that house, we have to enter through the first story, which is Jesus Christ. He is the door. So you go through the door and you meet Jesus Christ and you trust him. And then he tells you, I am fully identified with you. In fact, I am so identified with you, I became your sin. And then he says, and on top of that, you are fully identified with me. 
the central events of my life, my suffering, my death, my resurrection, my ascension to heaven, my being seated on the throne in heaven, is the central family history of the Trinity, and it has been given to you. Now, if you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about my own family background? What about my own father and mother? What about the events that have occurred in my life? And he'll say, oh, that's just tourist information. <laughs> the reality is, from the Trinity's perspective, that your life history, the life history that matters to God is that you have been joined to my suffering, my death, my burial, my resurrection, and that's how God sees it. That's right. And you look at him, he looks at you, and he says, what history do you want, your own or mine? You have no choice. You're already identified with mine. And you find out on that first floor that you are fully identified with the Son. And it's a twofold identification. And never forget this. When the Father looks at you, he sees the Son. When he looks at the Son, he sees you so that when you go to prayer to God the Father he is responding not just to you but to your union with his son which means which means that you shouldn't do what often many Christians do when they go to God the Father they make themselves their last three sins instead of the things that the son has done for them those last three sins need to be confessed but that's not who you are before God so that's what happens on the first floor and then the son says let's go up to the second story and meet God the Father. And as you proceed up the steps, he says, stop. When we walk into the presence of the Father, I want my arm to be around your shoulders. So that when he sees you, he sees that I deeply love you. So you go up the steps. It's narrow set of steps. So you're pushed up against each other, and then you turn at the top level at, on the landing, and you go in, and God the Father has this wondrous smile because anyone who reminds him of his son brings a smile to his face. Sort of works this way. I adore my mom. She's in heaven. And whenever I meet anybody who looks like my mom, I smile. Because there's a lot of good memories there. When anyone is joined to Jesus Christ, the Father smiles. Because there's a lot of good memories there. So, you walk into the Father's presence and you start talking to him. And the Son says to you, now whatever you do, trust him. You don't need a lot of trust. In fact, if you have a microscopic amount of trust in my dad, you'll find out it brings fantastic results. You don't need a lot. You just need some. And then as you choose to trust him, the Holy Spirit, who's on the third floor, 
comes down. Because the Holy Spirit is the voice of God to your own heart. The voice of God the Father. And when he speaks, it always comes with power. I was in China. And the reality of China is that anybody over 40 probably is suffering from post-traumatic stress reactions because they have gone through a horrible history. Every Chinese person over 40 that I've met in the United States could probably write the great Chinese novel. There's so much tragedy there. There's so much history there. And we have a hub training center in Beijing and people from all over China go to that center to be trained in five courses that we've been requested to create. One of those courses, it's the head-to-heart material. In fact, that material came out in Chinese before it came out in English. And one of our team members was teaching. And I have this translator who actually is one of the best translators in China. And it was her turn to rest. And the other teacher was teaching. And the beauty of China for a guy like me is this. If you're older than most of the people in the crowd, you're cool. <laughs> it's great culture. In fact, I found out a few things. That... Everybody waits when you go out for a meal. Every Chinese person will wait for the oldest person to take the first bite. I didn't know that I controlled the appetites <laughs> of everyone in the room. It took me a couple years to find that out. That <laughs> Why are they all waiting? <laughs> and then I found out a couple years later that nobody leaves until the oldest person leaves. And usually I'm that. And I had a translator with me, and she nudged me, Chinese woman, nudged me and said, you got to leave. <laughs> and I said, why do I have to leave? She said, nobody here is going to leave until you leave. <laughs> wow. In the United States, I'm just an old guy getting social security. <laughs> In China, I get some respect. It even gets better. If you're an old white guy, white guy is important because the Chinese, believe it or not, like Americans. The gold ticket in China is knowing American English. So if you're an old white guy who's got a PhD, because in their culture, education is everything. And if you're a professor, and if you write books... Now, if you're a younger person, be impressed with me. <laughs> At least in one part of the world, I'm reputable. So, back to the story. This translator, who's actually one of the best translators in China. In fact, we have a secular course that she is trying to be make part of the national curriculum of China. It's a mental health course based on Christian principles to be used in all the universities of China. Try that at Berkeley. Try that at the universities of the United States. A distinctly Christian-based curriculum. It's a strange world. Anyway, she's in the back. The other teacher's teaching. He's Chinese, he's younger than me, doesn't have a PhD, and he doesn't write books. So I didn't realize he's in trouble. The woman, the translator, puts up her hand. And she says, 
I have had a miserable life. Do you know when I was in the womb, my mother was in prison. This is the great Chinese novel. My father was in prison. While my father was in prison, he was trying to convince my mother to abort me. Finally, he decided and he said to my mother, okay, I have a friend who has a boy that he doesn't want. Let's give him the daughter that's in your womb and we'll take the boy. I don't want a child. Parents in prison. She's born into the family. The father wants no part of her. The mother is angry with her. She has a miserable life. But brilliant, hardworking, smart. She gets married. She's in Tiananmen Square with her husband. She's not there when the shooting starts. Her husband and herself flee. They get caught up by the security police. Eventually she gets divorced from her husband. And she says to the teacher, Why would God permit me to have such a miserable life? And she says it with great emotional intensity. Now here's the striking thing. I've known that woman for eight years. She's been translating for me for eight years. And she never unloaded on me like that. That's because I'm her professor. This guy is a, a mere teacher, and he's Chinese. He's getting blasted. And then she says, and God never talks to me. Never talks to me. I have these Christian friends. They talk to God the Father all evening. God the Father talks back. He never says a word to me. How do you answer that? And the poor guy <laughs> is just being bombarded because you got to see this lady. She is just one communicator. She's just bombarding the guy. And he's kind of wilting. And I'm thinking, I really should interrupt and stop this. <laughs> but you, you don't do that. In that kind of culture, you let the guy die. So we waited until the end of it. We took a break, and I took over. And I said to her, let me pick up on your questions. You have a question about God the Father answering you. And you made the comment that he's talking to every other Christian but you. And all these other Christians are saying he's talking to them all the time. Well, the reality is, he's not talking to them. The Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the one who delivers answers from heaven. The Holy Spirit is the voice of the Father in your heart. And let me ask you a question. What would you prefer? Would you prefer to hear the voice the actual voice of God the Father speaking to you as you pray, or would you prefer a person inside of your heart who can change your emotions, change your perspective, give you true insight, and give you pictures that will change your life? Do you want a voice, or do you want life change? Well, most Christians would say, give me the voice. And then after about two weeks, you would be tired of hearing the voice because the voice would not change your life. What changes your life is when you have a heart that has the capacity to change. And the Holy Spirit gives us the capacity to change. And that is the Father's answer when we pray. The Holy Spirit giving us insight. The Holy Spirit changing our emotions. The Holy Spirit changing our desires. The Holy Spirit giving us a vision for our life and an insight into this world. So, let's get back to the second story. 
you trust God the Father a little bit as you're talking to him, and the Holy Spirit comes down and he says, let me help you. And now you've got the three persons of the Trinity gathered around you. You have a father to talk to. You have a son who represents you. And you have a spirit that will change your inner life. You've got each member of the Trinity meeting you because you first met Jesus Christ. Secondly, on the basis of what Christ is and has done for you, you're talking to the Father. Then when you talk to the Father in faith, because here's a spiritual principle, the Holy Spirit never responds to suspicion. If you don't trust the Father, the Holy Spirit's not going to entrust you with anything. Because he doesn't bless rebels. He blesses those who trust the Father who is given a son for us. So as we trust the Father a little bit, the Spirit of God rushes to our aid. That's the three-story house of the Trinity. They're not living in separate cottages. They are interrelated in a set of profound and rich relationships, each one functionally relating differently to us. One as an Abba Father, one as a protective older brother, and one as the heart changer. So we're going to pick up, we're going to pick up on where we left off yesterday. How many of you were there yesterday? Well, to you, I apologize, you will be bored for about 15 minutes. <laughs> but some things bear repetition. And to those of you who haven't been there, this will be fresh and wonderful stuff <laughs> and well worth getting excited about the common symbol for the trinity is the triangle and the reason for that is that with a three-sided triangle of equal lengths each side fully participates of, in the entire area of the triangle. Representing the three sides are the three persons of the Trinity, and the sides of the triangle represent the fact that each person of the Trinity fully inhabits the nature of God the Father and can fully represent and fully match the capacity of the Father. The early church had a very simple but a very powerful argument for the equality of each person of the Trinity. The early church argued this way. They said, if the Father sends the Son to fully represent the Father, then the Son must be equal to the Father in person and in nature. Because he cannot be a full representation of the Father unless he is equal to the Father in capacity and nature. Very simple argument. Very powerful, very true. Then if the Father and Son send the Spirit to represent them, and he comes to dwell over the entirety of the earth, to minister to every person on this planet, and to indwell believers, then if he's a full representative of the Son and the Father, he must be equal in personhood, Equality, capacity, and nature, because he participates in the nature of the Father fully. So you have the three sides of the triangle, and at the top of the triangle is the Father. Because the pattern in Scripture, there's two ways of approaching the Trinity. One is philosophically, and one is biblically. If you approach the Trinity philosophically, you are going into a quagmire and you may never return. But if you approach it biblically and just realize that there is one God who exists 
within three persons. And each of these persons has a functionally different relationship to you. And if you follow that pattern in Scripture, you will discover each one of them as a friend. But in the pattern, the Father appears to be the initiator of everything. It was the Father's desire to have a creation, to have a universe. It was the Father's desire to have children, the daughters and sons of humanity, to become his children in a similar relationship that he has to Jesus Christ. And it was the Son who is the functional agent to create this universe and to create Adam and Eve on the behest of the Father. And it is the Spirit's role to sustain what the Father and Son do. After the Son started the church and left to heaven, left for heaven, the Holy Spirit came to sustain what the Son started on the behalf of the Father. And you have this pattern of initiation, creation, and sustaining all through Scripture. That's the symbol of the triangle. And within Scripture, we are told that Yahweh is one. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. My name is David. And my background is Welsh and German. From Pennsylvania. And in that family background, the way it works is Samuel Ekman married Marguerite Baco. When you're born into that type of family, the daughter will be called Marguerite. The first son will be called Samuel. And in that type of family, when the second child or third child is born, first there was a daughter, then a son, then there was another son, the way it works is that the, that son should be named David after my uncle David, my father's brother. You with me so far? Well, unfortunately, my father was an alcoholic and he had this habit of getting angry with people when he got drunk. So when I was born, when my brother Bill was born, my dad was angry with his brother David and so William was named William and not David. Then when my brother Tom was born, my dad was still angry with Uncle David. And so he was named after one of the uncles on my mother's side, Tom. But finally, when I was born, they were being friendly. So I am by default David. But in Western culture, it's not infrequent that sons should be named after fathers and daughters should be named after mothers or aunts, or if they're boys, after uncles. In China, it never works that way. Every name is fresh, like a snowflake. So when you ask a Chinese person, what is the meaning of your name? Oh my goodness, you almost get a poem. Their, their names are gorgeous. Falling leaves on an August day representing the purity of heaven. All in one name. Fantastic stuff. We're just boring. David's boring as can be compared to that. But sometimes cultures can teach you something. Because when you see where it says Yahweh is our God and Yahweh is one, in the Old Testament, there's two Yahwehs. There's actually two persons named Yahweh. One Yahweh is sent by Yahweh, the God of highest heaven, Jehovah, the God of highest heaven, and he is sent 
to the earth, and he's Yahweh, sent from Yahweh of highest heaven. Now, if you're a Westerner and not an Asian, you could quickly assume, oh, the one who comes to earth must somehow be connected to the one in heaven. There's some connection. But you're not told what the connection is until the New Testament. When God becomes one of us and he is given the name, this is what Jesus means. This is what Yeshua means. It means Yahweh has saved. And we're told that this Yahweh who appears in flesh is the Son of God. And there is a Father in heaven. And it is the Son's mission to introduce us to that Father in heaven. And it's only when the Son becomes one of us where the wherein the fatherhood of God is fully revealed. That's his mission, to introduce us to his Father. But we're told that Yahweh is one, even though there are two. And then we're told this, verse 5, because Yahweh is one, Yahweh is a profound unity, Therefore, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Meaning, who you are in your inner life should become thoroughly unified by a deep and profound love for Yahweh. What is the power of love? It unifies the heart. If you want to have a unified heart, have a deep and profound love for someone and your entire heart will migrate to serve that one. And so in a response of deep love, unify your heart the way Yahweh is unified. That's the great and classic statement of the Old Testament. The great and classic statement of the New Testament is this. Jesus says about the sheep, I give them eternal life and eternal quality of life. And in Greek he says, and they shall absolutely never perish. He takes the strongest form you can find in the common Greek of his time period. And he says, they absolutely will never perish. No one can take them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can take them out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one thing. And he uses the neuter one. There's a feminine one. There's a masculine one. But here he uses the neuter one to represent that they are a profound unit but two distinct persons, a profound unit as to nature, but also relationally intertwined. The great mistake of much of evangelicalism, I see this in China, I see this in Singapore, I see this in Canada, I see it in the United States, is that we have a disjointed trinity. It's similar to a car crash with three people involved who are all killed and their body parts are all smashed up. And when you arrive at the scene, you can't tell what belongs to whom. That's called the church doctrine of the Trinity nowadays. Well, when you step into Scripture, you find this flow where each person is deeply interrelated to the central purposes of the Father, but each one is doing something good for you, but it's different. And you can tell through the differences who the persons are. Here you have the Son saying, I'm holding you with my hand. And the Father is holding you with his hand. And if divine omnipotence as represented in those two persons are holding on to you, do you think you will perish? Yeah. 
And I don't think you should be so presumptuous that you think you can pry off the thumbs of deity off your body that's being held on to. You don't have that strength, nor do you have enough sin to get rejected. The Father and I are one thing. So, this is a principle, if you're given to reflection, the principle is, is simply that whenever deity does something, it's not done through an amorphous blob called God. It's done through a particular member of the Trinity. And the more you're able to pick out what each member of the Trinity does, the more personal your Christianity will become and you will participate in the church's true program. If I were to ask you what is the church's program, if I were to ask this question around the world, you get the most confusing hodgepodge of stuff you wouldn't believe. Program after program after program after program. But here's the church's program. This is your program. To live your life within the life of the Trinity and out of the overflow influence this world for good. It's like being a member of a happy family. What's the duty of a member of a happy family? Be happy. You'll be the envy of your neighborhood. Everyone will want to know what's your secret. And your response should be, you should meet my dad. You should meet my mom. And I got the sweetest older sister. <laughs> and that's the program. Be happy with the family you're in because this world is filled with vastly unhappy families. And a happy heart is the greatest witness for the truth of Christianity there is. And that's our program. If you're a miserably unhappy family, Christian, you are not participating in the life of the Trinitarian family. Because to be in the midst of that family is joy indeed. So yesterday I introduced, well, actually stole, this symbol from the British roundabout. And as I was driving a car and I saw that symbol, I thought, oh, that is so Trinitarian. It's a triangle. And I couldn't help but be amused only in Britain does this work. They want to represent a roundabout and they give you a triangle. <laughs> that represents a roundabout, the triangle. Those three arrows tell you the direction of the traffic flow within the roundabout. And I thought, three, Trinitarian. What a blessing. And then the arrows are going in the same direction, the cooperative trinity. Three distinct persons, but profoundly cooperating all the time, equally participating in the nature of God, God the Father. Marvelous. And then you can take all of the doctrines of Scripture, all of them, all of them, and you can apportion aspects of every one of those teachings among the members of the Trinity because it's almost as if they sat down and the Father said, Son, you do this, Holy Spirit, do this, and I'll do this. And then he divided up the activity. And then each of the persons does something for your benefit. But it's something different. Why is it different? So that we become intensely aware that God is one manifested in three eternally existing persons. Three persons. And when it comes to our sin, for instance, Scripture teaches us the Father is satisfied, the Son has satisfied the Father, the Father is at peace over our sins, and the Holy Spirit is pained when we, interestingly enough, run each other down, criticize each other, and grumble at each other, the Holy Spirit who is within us. I mentioned that my dad was alcoholic. The horrible part of growing up in my home was listening to my parents. 
This is just terrible. And it was so terrible that as a kid I thought, I'll be like a glass of water. Clear water. And like sunlight goes through that glass. This is what I was thinking as a kid. Like sunlight goes through that glass. I'll let what I hear go through me. I don't want it to stop because it hurts too much. I'll let it go through. Pain. Pain of listening to people who are the two most important people in my life seemingly hate each other day after day after day. Pain. And when Christians run each other down, criticize each other, grumble at each other, what does the Holy Spirit do? He goes into pain. Not anger, but pain. Because he knows to whom we belong. He knows who has redeemed us. And he knows we're deeply loved by the Son and the Father. Pain. So in reference to our sin, the Father's is peace. This is, this is really fascinating. It doesn't say the Father is in pain over our sin. It's the Holy Spirit whose job is to conform us to Christ. Why is the Father at peace? Because of the startling meaning of the symbolic representation of heaven. If you have a good imagination, you're well into Christianity because Christianity demands the use of the imagination. Christ was a fantastic storyteller. And John has a series of visions that he describes in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, he is taken up to heaven in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. In chapter 5, he sees the heavenly throne. And this is what he sees. And I saw, in Greek, it's literally, in the middle of the throne. And I saw in the middle of the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, 24 elders, a lamb permanently standing like one having been slain. That's my translation. And this is what it's describing. There's a little lamb in the middle of God's throne. A little lamb. It's a Greek diminutive. It's emphasizing the littleness of this lamb. How harmless he is. And he is standing there in the middle of the throne as if he had just been slain. What does that mean in English? The central thought in God the Father's heart is my son died for humanity. That's the central thought in the Father's heart. And in the middle of the throne, the very moment of Christ's death is eternally represented by that lamb, the very moment. I was teaching in Peninsula Bible Church, and I talked about this verse, and one of the pastors, a very thoughtful guy, he is Welsh in background. If you don't know it, Welsh people like me are very thoughtful. <laughs> and also melancholy, that goes with the territory. So he sends me a letter. And he said, we had a daughter, baby daughter, who was born. And she died the first day of her life in her mother's arms. And he wrote, I'll never forget that moment. Every day of my life, the moment of our daughter's death, replays itself. Is it any wonder that God the Father replays eternally 
the very moment of his son's death right in the middle of the throne. So if you walked up to God the Father in heaven and walked by the Lamb and said to the Father, what do you think of my sin? Isn't it terrible? Don't I deserve to be cast out? Don't I deserve to be penalized? And he'll look at you in, in your eyes and he'll say, what do I think of your sin? I have a question for you. What do you think of my son? Your sin is not what matters to me. What do you think of my son? My son is more important to me than your sin. What do you think of my son? Your sin is finite. We can number it. We can tell you the extent of it. My son's death is infinite because he's infinitely loved. He's infinitely valuable. He's infinitely worthy. And his blood covers an infinitude of sin. And your sin is actually very limited. What do you think of my son? And at that point, I hope you say a lot. Because that's the message. The father gave the son out of love for us. And the son and the father gave the spirit to give us the character of the son. Fascinating thing that in the book of Revelation there are two key figures and they're represented as animals. One is the little lamb who is slain. In the book of Revelation, the son is called, the majority of times the son is named, he's called the lamb. Now that's odd because the book of Revelation is the description of the reconquest of the earth by Jesus Christ, where he becomes the ruler of this world. But all through the book, he's called the Lamb. Then there's another figure in the book who's called the beast or the wild animal. And this beast is one who becomes a world ruler, who is worshipped by this world, who has power, who has strength, who is vicious, and who is finally judged and condemned when Christ returns. And there's this massive con con contrast between this wild beast and this little lamb. And do you know what's great about the church? The world is run, quite frankly, by wild beasts. It could be Democrats. They could be Republicans. It could be Communists. But ultimately, they're beasts grabbing at power. But what's great about the church is the church says, pure power without love is meaningless. And pure love is that little lamb. And it's that little lamb that ultimately will win and defeat all these beasts. Then Ephesians 4.30 tells us about the pain of the Spirit of God when believers are a pain. But what is the purpose of it all? This church is in Hudson. Okay. Is there a main street in Hudson? Yes, of course. Of course. <laughs> Not quite sure I've seen it. <laughs> If you went to the main street of Hudson and walked up to a non-Christian and said to the non-Christian, what's the purpose of your life? Why do you exist? Why do you breathe? The non-Christian will be hard put. The non-Christian will say, to take care of my family. To make money. Get educated. Get power. And they'll probably define themselves by what they do and what they've gained and what they've earned. 
And all of their purposes ultimately will be futile. But what is your purpose? If you ask 10 non-Christians in a row what their purpose is, videotape it because it will be pretty interesting. But what's your purpose? If the non-Christians turn to you and said, why do you exist? The answer would be here. Jesus is praying to the Father in John 17, and he says, I in them, referring to believers, he's praying to the Father right before his crucifixion, and he's going over, strangely enough, the details of the covenant or the contract between him and the Father as to what the Father gets and he gets out of his death on the cross. It's really going over the details of a contract before he goes out and dies. And he says, I in them, I'm going to be in the midst of their hearts. And you in me, so that you will be in the midst of their hearts. That they may be brought to completion in one. Notice that word one, it's crucial. Because the Trinity is a profound unity. And our purpose is to become one within that unity. To become intelligent, vital participants in that unity. That they may be brought to completion in one, that the world may know that you sent me. The greatest witness to Jesus Christ is a happy, contented Christian. Not an angry critical Christian, but a peaceful, happy, loving heart. And how do you get a peaceful, happy, loving heart? You participate in the happiest family there is, which is the Trinitarian family. Good father, good brother, wonderful helper, the Holy Spirit. And that communicates to the world. that the world may know that you sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. Doug? It's Doug? May I borrow you? Oh, good. Come on here, Doug. And let, let me see. Esther, where's Esther? Esther, may I borrow you? Over here, Yuck. Esther. Esther's going to be the Holy Spirit. Doug is going to be Jesus, and the leftovers are going to be me, God the Father. And we're going to put Esther back here, and thankfully, she's a little bit shorter than we are, so you can't see her. But she's there, and she represents the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things we have to remember, the Trinity has masculine and feminine characteristics. Listen to this statement and see what you think. The Father is more compassionate and affectionate than any woman has ever been compassionate or affectionate. Agree or disagree? Yeah, more compassionate and affectionate. He has a heart of compassion. The son is more noble and courageous than any male has ever been. Masculine characteristics. The reason males and females exist is the female shows forth the feminine characteristics of the Trinity. The male shows forth the masculine characteristics of the Trinity. Each gender is vital to represent the Trinity. Now, you're the son. I'm God the Father. We like each other. Don't just stand there. We like each other. <laughs> and, and, and you can put your arm up here if you can, but I don't want you to break your arm. We like each other. We have liked each other for eternity. There is great joy in the son-father-father-son relationship. And the Holy Spirit loves that relationship because Paul wrote, just like the human spirit knows the things 
of a man. So the Holy Spirit knows the deep things of God. The Holy Spirit knows these things and loves these things and loves to reveal these things and loves to conform Christians to this relationship. So we love each other. Notice what it says. Why are they laughing at us? <laughs> that the world may know that you have sent them and you have loved them even as you loved me. You love them even as you loved me. Many Christians think of themselves as second-class citizens, but the same quality of love that the Father has for the Son, He has for you. He has for you. Same quality of love. And it's the Holy Spirit who wants to convince you of that. Now, I know of a young lady in this congregation who seven or eight weeks ago made a profession of faith, and I think her name is Barbara. Is she here? Oh, come on up here. Is it Barbara? Did I get it right? Okay, Barbara, come on up here. Seven or eight weeks ago, she trusted in Christ. Am, am I accurate? Yeah. She says, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> With great boldness. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> now, you don't know this, but she speaks Hochdeutsch, German, but German from 200 to 300 years ago because she's Amish in background. And you may not know this, but she speaks Hochdeutsch, which is German 200 and 300 years ago that the Amish speak. So what's really cool is that our Hochdeutsch-speaking Holy Spirit is going to communicate to her in the language of her heart because that's the Holy Spirit's job, to speak to us in the language of our heart. Now, Barbara, no, notice this. This is great. <laughs> Barbara, come on over here. And what happens when you become a believer? You are put in between the Father and Son so you can experience the Son's relationship to the Father and the Father's relationship to the Son and that you can participate in the delight of the Father now, here's the cool thing. While she was not a Christian, the Father delighted in her. Now that she is a Christian, the Father's delight is even greater because she's in union with her son. So, I put my arm around her shoulder. Ah, oh, Jesus is a quick learner. <laughs> <laughs> And we're going to have a little exercise. Don't get nervous. Think clearly. These are not tr trick questions. And if you get it wrong the first time, I'll help you out. Can the son become the father and the father become the son? Are they interchangeable? <laughs> no, they're not. They're eternally different persons. Thank you. Very good. It's only seven weeks, folks. Give her a break. <laughs> Can the Holy Spirit become the Son? Can the Holy Spirit become the Father? Nine. Knee. Oh, knee. Okay, that's German from 200 years ago. <laughs> What's your answer? No! Yeah, they're not interchangeable parts. They're distinct persons who participate in the nature of the Father. They are all equal. Very good. So here's the deep question. You're made in the image of God. If he's a unique person, if I'm a unique person, God the Father, God the Son, if the Holy Spirit is a unique person and you're made in the image of the Father and Son, are you unique? Yeah. So translate that. You are unique in the language of the heart.
You are unique. There's only one of you that's ever going to exist. If you cease to exist, there would be a hole in the universe. Something would be missing that's unique. And it's you. That's why you're worth dying for. There's only one of you. You're made in the image of God. You're as unique as a member of the Trinity. As of a human. As a person. And God the Father loves you. The Father loves you. The Son was happy to die. Happy to die for you. And you bring the light to the Father and the Son. Now the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make her feel good. So maybe if you stroke her head, <laughs> that'll calm her down and, and deal with the nervousness. So, let me explain how discipleship is supposed to work. Barbara, the father's arm is on this shoulder. The son's arm is on that shoulder. The Holy Spirit's hand is on your head. Where should your arms be? That's called discipleship. We love We love because he first loved us. When we experience his love because we're made in the image of God, we spontaneously love back because we have entered into the meaning of our existence to participate in the life of the Trinity. The Father wants many sons and daughters like his son Jesus Christ to expand the joy of the Trinity. That is your ultimate reason for breathing. Amen. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And Hochdeutsch is really different than modern German. As I thought, where did those words come from? The Trinity is the pride of Christianity and the purpose of Christianity. Do not lower yourself below the greatness you've been called to. Don't make yourself the slave of men or the slave of religious activity. Function as a free daughter and son of God who is loved by the Son, loved by the Father, inhabited by the Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the wonder and the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that God has become one of us. The glory, the glory of Christianity is the humility of our God. This world chases after greatness. This world chases after reputation. And your son chased after a cross. We marvel at that. We wonder at that. And may the glory of our lives be that we have recognized the one who is on the cross, that that is the Son of God. And that the central reality of history in this world and the universe is God has redeemed humanity to expand 
the experience of Trinitarian love. For each person here, for Barbara especially, may your spirit be continually be reminding us of your affection for each of your children, uniquely expressed to each unique child. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.